0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. This show does tend to be a little bit loosely organized, but frankly, we consider that to be one of our strengths. Today's program promises to be a little bit more loosely wrapped than others, which we trust will make it just that much stronger. We anticipate some help from some old pals as this show unspools, and uh, we'll just have to see who shows up, because, uh, well, our guest list is kind of tentative. But no matter, let us start this program confidently, as we like to do, with On This Date in History. Our date in question being the 30th of May. It was on May 30th in 1593 that the English playwright Christopher Marlowe, age 29, was stabbed to death in a brawl over a bar tab. Marlowe is best known for Dr. Faustus. There are, of course, some who suspect that Marlowe may have been the real author of the works of William Shakespeare. There are many candidates for this. Possibly the least promising among them is the man alleged by scholars in the English Department to have been the writer. It's a controversy we find fascinating on this program. Mr. McMillan leans toward the theory that it was actually Francis Bacon. while well, I'm convinced it was Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford. But of course, the very mention of Bacon's name does allow us to quote from Mel Brooks as the 2,000-year-old man who, when asked by straight man Carl Reiner if, in fact, Bacon had written Shakespeare, Brooks replied, No, this is a confusion. It's not that Bacon wrote Shakespeare. It's that Shakespeare ate Bacon. And moving right along, on May 30th in 1806, future U.S. President Andrew Jackson kills Charles Dickinson, a lawyer regarded as one of the best pistol shots in the area. This was in a duel in Logan County, Kentucky. Jackson, who participated actually in several duels, challenged Dickinson, who allegedly slandered Jackson's wife, Rachel, as a bigamist. Think about that next time you pull out a $20 bill. Our wild man president. On a happy note, on May 30th, 1848, W.G. Young of Baltimore, Maryland patented the first ice cream freezer. Thank you, Mr. Young. And on this date, in 1868, General John A. Logan of the Grand Army of the Republic proclaimed the first Memorial Day to honor those who died in defense of their country. The holiday was known to some as Decoration Day because early mourners honored Civil War dead by decorating their graves with flowers. And that's why this past weekend was the Memorial Day weekend. I know we usually don't cite birthdays as part of our uh, This Day in History. I think we do want to note that it was on this day 105 years ago in San Francisco that Mel Blanc, the voice of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, and countless other Warner Brother cartoon characters, was born. Make a note, Mr. McMillan, we need to bring Corey Burton back on this program. I had a chance to listen, as I like to do every so often, to one of our old programs where we had Corey Burton, voiced actor extraordinaire, come on and nail the voices of bulwinkle Inspector Fenwick, and Snidely Whiplash. Corey Burton told me that in his uh, youth, he had a chance to work with Mel Blanc, and we just need to get him back on the show just for general principles. Our quote of the day comes from the illustrious Fyodor Dostoevsky, who said, man only likes to count his troubles. He doesn't calculate his happiness. Our quote of the day comes from T.S. Eliot, another author of some repute, who said, half the harm done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. And for our joke of the day, I think we're going to do what we did last week, Mr. McMillan, and go visit that uh, that website about old Jews telling jokes.
1: Fellow driving down the Long Island Expressway sees a lot of flashing lights, pulls the car over. The officer motions to roll down his window, and he says, "Sir, do you realize that your wife fell out of the car about a mile back?" And he says, "Oh, thank God! I thought I was going deaf." <laughs> <laughs>
0: Our stats of the day, and we have three, are as follows. I want to thank The Week magazine for providing all of them. These come from their noted section. Stat number one, about 30% of all death certificates fail to provide the true cause of death according to a new study. Many physicians surveyed admitting identifying an inaccurate cause of death either because they had to guess or because the system they were using did not allow them to enter the true cause. That's from the Center for Disease Control which some jackass renamed the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, as if control didn't include prevention. Stat number two from the Washington Post. Of all children reported missing in the U.S., 0.01% turn out to be abducted by strangers, about 115 a year. The vast majority of children reported missing are taken by family members, usually in a custody dispute, runaway, or have gotten lost or injured. Of course, here in California, we have an entire system of signs set up on the interstate highways to supposedly alert us to child abductions. Given their relative paucity, the signs usually say things like, click it or tick it, or slow down for highway workers. Sometime back, we got a governor named Arnold Schwarzenegger, former Hollywood muscle man, was our governor for a while. He had an idea of raising revenues for the state of California by selling advertising on those signs, (sighs) but I digress. Our third stat of the day is that college sports coaches are the highest paid state employees in 41 of the 50 states. They receive checks that surpass the salaries of governors, university presidents, and doctors and lawyers working in state agencies. All right, let's jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? According to The Week magazine, and we do want to thank them again for their concise reporting, among other things... But according to the week, it was a good week last week for the munchies. After a Washington farmer who fed her pigs lots of marijuana leaves and stems found they gained an extra 20 to 30 pounds, said Susanna Gross, they were eating more, as you can imagine. Boy, how long before the operators of feedlots find out about this? Maybe we can replace all the excess antibiotics we're using in our meat with cannabis. Wouldn't that be interesting? Gonna have to get Guy Bilem back on the show to see what he knows about that, being that he is our resident cannabis expert. At any rate, it was a bad week last month for Walmart shoppers after a Pennsylvania man was charged with whipping out a handgun, firing several shots, and killing a deer he spotted in a Walmart parking lot. After arresting Arcangelo Bianco Jr., A wildlife officer conceded, it was the nicest buck I've seen taken in Indiana County. Of course, this does raise the question. When shooting deer in a parking lot with a handgun is outlawed, would it not be then that only outlaws would shoot deer in a parking lot with a handgun? I don't know. But we do know it was kind of an ugly week for extreme picnics last week after a group of American tourists in Iceland started to eat dinner on a table and chairs set up on an ice floe. <laughs> they then found themselves floating out to sea when the flow broke apart. And yes, they did have to be rescued. And this does cause us at Radio Parallax to make the following public service announcement. If you are in Iceland and spot a table and chairs set up out on an ice floe, do not necessarily assume it'd be good for you to go out there and have a picnic. I know some of these rules are just common sense, but you know, gee whiz. And finally, we're not sure whether it was a good or a bad or an ugly week for sightseeing last week. But we do know this. A couple who'd booked a Turkish Airlines flight from Los Angeles to Dakar, Senegal, ended up almost 7,000 miles away in Dhaka, Bangladesh, said Sandy Valvedisco in her defense. When the flight attendant said we were headed to Dhaka, we believed this was how you pronounced Dakar with a Turkish accent. We at Radio Parallax are fortunate that we actually do have a Turkish correspondent, someone familiar with the Turkish language. That would be our own Gordon Smith, to which at this point we say, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Gordon. Thank you very much, Doug. So we do have to ask you, sir, how do you think they would pronounce Dakar with a Turkish accent?
1: I believe they would pronounce it Dakar.
0: <laughs> because uh, I guess the letters are the same, or
1: those five letters that make up Dakar are pronounced the same in Turkish as they are in English.
0: Well, there you go. So I guess the surmise of Sandy Valdiviseo that they're pronouncing Dakar as Daka, well, that was just well, that was just unfounded.
1: Yeah, I, I think that was a bit of a stretch there. Yep. Yeah, of course, those airport uh, public <laughs> announcement systems are not known for their high-fidelity audio. No,
0: I believe there was a famous case in L.A. That, uh, of some years back of a similar, similar type. A guy wanted to go to Oakland from Los Angeles, and, uh, well, I guess when Air New Zealand announced the flight departing for Auckland, there was a bit of a mix-up.
1: The really startling thing about that particular episode is that once this guy had arrived in New Zealand, having gotten there (laughs) for free, he didn't have enough imagination to think to himself, hmm, maybe I should spend a few days in New Zealand.
0: (laughs) Caveat to our listeners, if you get caught up in a similar airport mishap, do what you can to to see the place you wound up in. I I think I can agree with you on that one.
1: Yep. This uh, past spring, I was traveling from um, Gallipoli in Turkey uh-huh. to the town of Ivalik. Ivalik being a beautiful little uh, former Greek town on the on the Aegean, um, known for its uh, scenery and its uh, its fine food. The problem is that when I went to the bus station and they asked me where I wanted to go, and I said, Ivalik, and the guy came back to me with Ivachik. I thought, well, it's probably just a different dialect of Turkish. So yes, I nodded vigorously. Sure enough, he sold me a pair of bus tickets to Ivachik. Well, it turns out that Ivachik is not nearly as nice a destination as Ivalik. These two towns, that at least to the American ear, sound as if their names are almost uh-huh. identical, are about an hour apart from one uh-huh. another by bus. Uh-huh. So there wasn't too much damage done. We ended up killing time in a rather disgusting little bus terminal <laughs> in uh, in Ivachik, And I must say, my son probably lost a certain amount of respect for his father's navigational skills, but hey... We would never have gotten to see <laughs> Ivochik otherwise.
0: Okay, and, and uh, i gathering Ivochik was not necessarily a garden spot since you, like the guy in New Zealand, <laughs> turned around and took the next bus out, I take, I assume.
1: Yes, that is exactly what happened.
0: Garden, always a pleasure. Come back let's talk about something besides uh, Turkish pronunciation. Maybe kayaking instead.
1: We must do that.
0: All right. I have to note with some sadness that when Gordon and I were out kayaking last weekend near the Mavericks surf break in Half Moon Bay, I mentioned that it was great that Ephrion Rios-Mont was now going to be sent behind bars. He said, didn't you hear? They threw out the conviction on an appeal. Yes, yeah, sadly, it turns out that the appeal ruled that an incident wherein Rios Mont's attorney, who was kicked out of the courtroom for a few hours, well, it renders the whole thing suspect and they're going to have to send the case back to trial. I like the part about the reporting on this notes that this revives concerns that the country's judicial system is susceptible to political pressure. Hmm, do you think so? We can only hope that he gets retried and reconvicted, but I would hasten to add that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California, to which I would add the addendum, none of whom are sympathetic to murderous, genocidal Central American dictators, at least as far as we know. We have an item by way of follow up, which is that the Boeing 787 Dreamliner is now back in action. Last week, United Airlines resumed Dreamliner service, weeks after aviation regulators cleared the plane to resume flights. The CEOs of both Boeing and United were aboard the Dreamliner from Houston that down to touchdown at Chicago's O'Hare International early and without incident. Although touted for its fuel efficiency, the 787 had been mired in production delays for overheating batteries, which forced a worldwide grounding earlier this year. We would note this is quite a contrast from the Boeing 747, which was never grounded and retrofitted in spite of the incredible claim by the U.S. government that the center fuel tanks on those planes just sometimes explode spontaneously. And yes, we're planning to bring Christina Borgeson back on this program next month in conjunction with her new documentary about the downing of TWA Flight 800 by the U.S. Navy in a horrible accident back in 1997. Moving right along from the miscellaneous file, we have this item. City Councilman Eric Garcetti won the race to become the 42nd mayor of Los Angeles this week, becoming the first Jewish mayor in the city's history, which, yes, caused us to pause (laughs) and say... Eric Garcetti's Jewish? And apparently he is. He defeated controller Wendy Gruel with 54% of the vote. Both candidates were moderate Democrats with City Hall experience, but surveys showed that Garcetti received far more support from Republicans than his rival who was seeking to become the city's first female mayor. And also from the miscellaneous file, this piece about political races and various ethnic backgrounds, the Virginia GOP has angered national Republicans seeking to broaden their party's appeal by nominating a controversial black minister with a history of making inflammatory remarks as their choice for lieutenant governor. Lawyer-turned-preacher E.W. Jackson will be second on the Republican ticket after gubernatorial nominee Attorney General Ken Cuccinelli, whom, well, we're just not sure if he's Jewish or not. But uh, Jackson, for his part, had in the past compared Planned Parenthood to the Ku Klux Klan, said that Obama had, quote, Muslim sensibilities, unquote, and called gays perverted. Also, very sick psychologically, mentally, and emotionally. Comments that some Republicans reportedly fear could threaten Cuccinelli's chances in the state that has twice given the edge to President Obama. Cuccinelli distanced himself from Jackson, who was reportedly chosen by a small party convention, saying, I'm not going to defend my running mate's statements at every turn. Good plan. And some follow-up we had in something we reported on the show some weeks back about corruption south of the border. The Mexican government announced Wednesday it has fired an official whose daughter sent inspectors to shut down a restaurant that didn't give her the table she wanted. It's the latest comeuppance for the wealthy and well-connected who have recently caused anger in Mexico with arrogant behavior in public. Interior Secretary Miguel Ángel Osorio Chong, who, as far as we know, is not Jewish, called a news conference to say the government fired Humberto Benitez Trevino as head of the country's consumer protection agency because his daughter got inspectors to punish an upscale Mexico City bistro last April when she didn't get the table she wanted. And in our continuing battle in the United States of America against labor, we have some follow-up on our story that uh, it really is the end of the road for the Golden Gate Bridge toll-takers. We talked about how that was imminent, and it's now a thing of the past. You can't pay cash. The new system in place does allow drivers to pay using digital transponders that deduct money from a prepaid account Or a credit card through license plate scans that generate bills mailed to drivers. This sounds like a sensible system, doesn't it? A career toll taker was quoted as saying about the new system, some customers still want to pay cash. They don't want to be tracked and photographed. This uh, switchover is expected to save about $16 million in salaries and benefits over eight years. You know, isn't the worst thing in the world to have to pay people to have a job? When are the powers that be going to realize this? Shipping our entire industrial base across the Pacific to China, you know, it's just not working out that well. I mean, it is if you want to buy cheap crap at Walmart, but if you'd like to have a well-paying job here in the United States, well, that's, it's creating problems for that. So let's jump here for a moment into some good news. Apparently back in the late 90s, down in Albuquerque, New Mexico, it a teenage customer at Klaus Hjortjeer's restaurant, Le Café Michel, took a date for a Valentine's dinner but found himself 40 bucks short when the check came. Hjortjeer discreetly took care of it and told the teenager to repay him one day. That day apparently came last week when the patron wandered into the restaurant and handed his old benefactor a $100 bill for a, the check plus interest. Said Hjortjeer, sometimes it pays off to be a nice guy. And of course, Mr. McMillan and I Fully concur with that being a couple of real nice guys ourselves. We do not subscribe to Leo DeRocher's uh, statement that nice guys finish last. By the, by the way, the guy that played DeRocher in that movie 42, he was pretty good. This correspondent is just, just old enough to have caught the end of the career of Leo the Lip. And I do have to say, he was a character. And speaking of characters, let's, let's go to one of our favorite characters, America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst. Or as we may start referring to him, Will the Lip Durst. Hey,
2: guys will Durst here with a few choice words about the IRS conducting audits on Tea Party-affiliated organizations. And those words are, what's the big deal? Why is everybody so upset? Wouldn't you sort of expect that? The Tea Party is vehemently anti-tax, while the IRS is, for the lack of a better phrase, pro-tax. The two are natural enemies, like the mongoose and the cobra, sheep and wolves, IT support, and everybody else on the frickin' planet. The Tea Party's stated goal is to shrink the government and get rid of the IRS. Now, don't you think that people whose philosophy preaches something is evil might garner a bit of extra scrutiny from the folks whose jobs they're threatening? The same way a legalized pot bumper sticker might prompt a cop to sniff the air inside a car when he stops it. That's not profiling. That's human nature. A reflex. Common sense. Besides, we're not talking about two beloved groups here. The Tea Party versus the IRS. It's a battle of the bottom. A fight between stinky and poopy. And anybody caught in the middle is destined to emerge with a few of the sticky bits all over them. Out of 296 applicants, not one Tea Party organization was denied nonprofit status. The charges boil down to the IRS making things difficult. Imagine that an inconvenient interaction with the government. Next, you'll tell me insurance companies employ delaying tactics. Whoever this comes as a surprise to obviously hasn't been paying attention to Congress for the last four and a half years. But the Tea Party is waving their victimization as a flag of honor and are re-energized, which may be the last thing the Obama administration needs. As a matter of fact, the only people dreading it more would be the rest of the Republican Party. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst.
0: All right, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Mr. McMillan, I think you should find something appropriate for a comment on the tea party. Ah, Well done, Mr. McMillan. Tea for Two, a song from the 1925 musical No, No, Nanette, music by Vincent Yeomans, lyrics by Irving Caesar.